doing what only God can do. So healing leprosy, and even more so, forgiving a man his sins. And he's called Peter, a sort of self-confessed sinner, called him into the service of this king, of himself. And through all of this, his priority has been to teach the forgiveness of sins, preaching the forgiveness of sins in him has arrived. But not everyone likes it. There's been opposition, so his hometown didn't like it. And religious experts don't like him. They don't like his message of, that his message of repentance and forgiveness is for who they consider sinners, as if they're in some different category. So, given that Luke said he's trying to help us be certain about Jesus, why does he include all these stories about how Jesus was opposed, how Jesus' own people, his own sort of religious leaders, were against him? So, there's an outline there. We've got um, three points. First one, all change. We'll look at verses 33 to 39 in chapter 5. And Jesus' presence changes how we relate to God. That's the point. Jesus' presence changes how we relate to God and challenges the status quo. So it was Valentine's Day last week. How did you go? Did you do pretty well in the romance stakes? It's kind of like a measuring stick, isn't it, Valentine's Day, of um, seeing where you're up to in the romance stakes, which is why it brings me out in a cold sweat. (laughs) So how did you go? Were you swept off your feet? Or were you left doing the sweeping up? Was it beautiful flowers or withering glowers? Now, in this church at Trinity Bay, we're always on about trying to help one another grow to maturity in Christ. But how, actually, how do you measure that? How do you work out if someone's maturing in Christ? How do you know someone's going on well in their faith? Well, in first century Israel, a good indicator, um, a kind of, sort of measuring stick of uh, how you're going with God, was fasting. So going without food. Anyone, the, the norm, when Jesus, in this story, this bit of the gospel, the norm is anyone who had anything to do with God would regularly fast. And the Pharisees, they were super spiritual because they did it twice a week. So somebody not fasting regularly, it's like for us, um, somebody from your growth group stopping turning up or somebody stopping attending church regularly on um, a Sunday morning. It'd be like a red flag. Is this person really serious about God? And so in our first scene here, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the religious rulers, they have a bit of a, a, bit of a sideswipe at Jesus via his disciples. Verse 33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus' response is to tell them that everything has changed. Jesus answered, verse 34, Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. That's Jesus' first reference to the fact that he's going to be crucified. So, what he's saying is, fasting is off Jesus' disciples' agenda because of who they're with, who they're following. So you get invited to a wedding, don't you? 
you pretty much expect to get fed. I've got a distinct recollection of Sharon eating some of Owen's baby food at a wedding we went to in England because we turned up expecting food and there wasn't any. I know, wow. You, say, you know, we get that, don't you? You go to a wedding, you go to a wedding, you expect food. So we get, it's, food's part and parcel of the celebration, is it? So same in Jesus' day, so we get that. You don't expect the groomsmen to go hungry on the wedding day. But what does Jesus mean by comparing himself to a bridegroom? Well, just uh, in previous weeks, we've looked at how poor was a theologically loaded word, meaning those suffering under God's judgment. And so bridegroom here is also a theologically loaded term. It means lots about God. So let me explain. And it begins way back in the beginning in, with Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.24, uh, they're brought together as husband and wife. Remember, this is before the fall. It's a good thing. It's part of uh, God's good plan. And marriage was designed to mirror the true relationship with God that we were made for, that closeness of relationship. And so uh, later on in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 54.5 and in Hosea 2.7, God is depicted as the husband of his people. And in chapter 4, we heard um, Jesus being claiming to be God's warrior king, his, his anointed one or chosen one, or the, the words Christ and Messiah mean the same, the same thing, the anointed one. And God's king is depicted in Song of Songs and in Psalm 45 as the ideal bridegroom for his people. So Jesus is claiming to be this bridegroom He's claimed to be God's king, the Christ, the anointed one, who brings forgiveness of sins. And that means his disciples shouldn't be fasting. They should be in, in party mode. Because through Jesus, their prayers are answered. The perfect wedding feast is on, on its way. Uh, got these verses on the screen in Isaiah 25. Um, it describes salvation. It describes the results of Jesus forgiving our sins of eternity with God in terms of a wedding banquet like this. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him. And he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Let us rejoice and be glad, not let's fast. Jesus said he is the bridegroom, so, so everything's changed. We're in a new period of salvation history. In, in movie terms, it's like the franchise has been rebooted. And with Jesus' arrival... God's kingdom has broken in, and it's time to start the party. The wedding banquet is on the way. Now, let me say, Jesus is not having a go at fasting, the practice of fasting itself. There's, it's a topic for another day. There are good reasons to fast. But Jesus is, is having a go at the religious leaders' rationale in this situation, their rationale for fasting. Because if they're fasting to relate to God, to seek God's favour, if they're fasting to ask God to save them, 
or maybe just to look like they're the really good guys. Well, all of that's now redundant because Jesus, the bridegroom, the Messiah King, has arrived. Jesus is fulfilling what they might be fasting for. We now relate to God through Jesus. So fasting while Jesus is around, it's like, um, say you've gone to a surprise party. Okay, you all hide behind the curtains and everything. The person arrives, surprise, and they look like they're enjoying themselves, for your sake. But then, but then all that's happened, and then you still spend the whole night behind the sofa. Shh, they're going to be here in a minute. Fasting while Jesus is around is like that. Missing the arrival. So the way we relate to God has changed. Now it's through Jesus. And then Jesus tells them three parables, three little snippets to show that this new order of things is incompatible with the current religious order that he's in. So verse 36, he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch on an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch on the new will not match the old. So Jesus' work, Jesus' arrival is radically new and it can't just be tacked onto the old. So it's, it's like with music. You can, a vinyl record and a USB stick can both play your music, but you can't put a vinyl record in a USB slot. It's just not compatible. So Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, yes. He's continuous with the Old Testament, yes. But a new phase of God's plan has begun. And then there's this stuff about wineskins, verses 37 and 38. So just to explain, old wineskins made of leather were inelastic, a little brittle. And you couldn't put new wine in them because new wine was still fermenting and so producing gas. And inflating. So if you put it in old wineskins, they would split. New wine had to go in new wineskins. In other words, there needs to be a radical change to Israel's religious structure. The new won't fit into the old. But Jesus is realistic, verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine, no one having the Penfold Grange, wants the new yellow glen. No one after drinking old wine wants the new For they say, the old is better. The old order are not going to like the idea of becoming redundant since their old ways give them reputation, gives them power. So what's the application for us here? So the danger, I think, whenever you see, we read about the Pharisees, the easy thing for me to do is think, all right, well, how are we like the Pharisees? And that's the application. Make, I send you all away feeling bad about yourselves. But no, Luke says he's written his gospel to give us certainty. So we're not the Pharisees. I don't know, I don't know about you. Does anybody want to murder Jesus? No. We're not the Pharisees. We want to give you certainty, not make you wobbly. So I think the application here is to know two things. Firstly, just know that Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the one who can save us, forgiving our sins so that we get to enjoy life following Jesus. Jesus is the one who secures our invite 
to God's great wedding banquet. Feet under the table. Jesus is good news. There may come good reasons to fast, but we don't need to to fast to ask God how or when or if he's going to save us. Because in, in Jesus, he's turned up. He's kept his promises to save us. Uh, the second thing, point of application here, I think, is to know that here, we're witnessing, alongside Luke, we're witnessing Jesus announcing a new phase in God's big plan in our, in our salvation history. Which is just a helpful thing to bear in mind as you study the Bible, as you explain the Bible. It's all about the same God. It's all the same promises. But to really get it, we have to see how all those strands of the Old Testament are gathered together are fulfilled in Jesus. So that's why when you hear us uh, preach or teach the Old Testament here, unapologetically, we'll teach you about Jesus as well, because ultimately, it's about him. But you can feel the Pharisees getting hot under the collar, can't you? Getting crosser and crosser, offended and threatened. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And there's an immediate example of the change Jesus has brought and the conflict it brings. He claims to be, our second point, Lord of the Sabbath. So we're looking at verses 1 to 5 of chapter 6 here. Jesus claims that the Sabbath, so the day of rest, is for him and it's all about him. So this time... The Pharisees are offended because they reckon Jesus' disciples are doing work on the Sabbath. They've picked a head of grain, just walking through the fields, pick a head of grain, rub it together in your hand, instant snack, you can eat the kernels. Now, we just need to get our heads around the idea of Sabbath, first of all. So Sabbath just means rest. So you could be resting, you can be Sabbathing, interchangeable term. So, back in Genesis again, Genesis 2, 1 to 3, God rested, or Sabbathed, on the seventh day from his work creation. Now, why is that? Why did God Sabbath? Was he tired? No, he's God. He doesn't get tired. He didn't need to put his feet up. He keeps working. Jesus himself says in John's Gospel, My father is always at his work, and to this very day, Sorry, he's always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So God's not having a snooze. God's rest, or Sabbath, was what all the creating was for. It's kind of the purpose and the point of it. God and humanity living together in his perfect world. Now, I don't know about you, but in Genesis, we tend to race ahead to chapter 3, to the bad bit, to the fall. But if you hang around... Read a few times, Genesis 2, 5 to 25 this week. And what you get is a picture of Sabbath rest, the Garden of Eden. And it's easy to miss just how Adam and have got everything. They've got more than they need. They've got, it's just like nothing they could think of is not provided for. It's just perfect. But the fall does come, sin comes in Genesis 3 and humanity is expelled from this perfect rest, from this perfect Sabbath and here we are still today living in a world under God's judgment and so under Moses um, 
in the Old Testament, God set up a Sabbath day as a day to rest from all physical work, to enjoy, for the people to enjoy their relationship with God. To remember that life is not all about work, about doing stuff. It's not all about the material here and now. And it was a day to look forward, to have, just have the time to look forward to the rest, to the Sabbath of God's new creation, which will be even better than the Garden of Eden. So the Sabbath was supposed to be like a festival day, a happy day. Now, if you're into um, the church calendar and stuff, you know, 40 days of Lent, and uh, people give up things for Lent, don't they? Actually, if you look at Lent, it goes longer than 40 days, because, uh, calendar days, because you take out the Sundays, because the Sabbath is supposed to be a festival day. Just a little bit of Church of England trivia for you there. But the Sabbath, the point is, Sabbath is a festival day. It's a happy day. It's not a day to be miserable. But by this scene, the Pharisees had come up with 613 extra rules to make absolutely sure that no one did any work on the Sabbath. And Jesus' disciples had just broken two of them. They picked the head of grain, one. They rubbed it together in their hands, two. Now, have you ever worked with somebody who skives off a lot? Some people seem to be able to make doing nothing into an art form, don't they? I worked with one guy in England, and I swear, the lengths he went to to not do work were harder work than just doing some work. And that's where the Pharisees have got to. They've hijacked the not working thing, designed to free people up to enjoy God and remember what life's really all about. Enjoy his rest. And they turned it into, well, work. A work of its own. Following all those rules, there's really no rest at all. So, Jesus reminds them of uh, one of their lessons that they would have learned in mixers. In verses 3 to 4. It's about a time when David, who would become King David, not yet king, but he has been anointed by, chosen by God, marked out. He was on the run from hostile pretender to the throne, King Saul. And he takes refuge. And the only available food to him was bread that only priests were supposed to eat. Consecrated bread. Now, at that time, for David, those laws were really important to him and to his people. Because they were the way God had set out for people to follow him. So they're important. But this story is an example of where the needs of God's anointed one were more important than the law. Because the law was to serve the king. The king superseded the law. So what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is implying that he is God's anointed king, the true bridegroom, and the Pharisees are the hostile pretenders. That God's law should serve Jesus. And Jesus' disciples shouldn't have to serve their man-made laws. Well, they're really offended now. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 5, then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That perfect rest, better than the Garden of Eden rest, that the Sabbath anticipated... This rest is to be found in Jesus. The Sabbath was made for Jesus. And the Sabbath is about Jesus. 
when a, the queen or a president goes out on the road in their motorcade, they don't stop for the traffic lights, do they? They don't obey the road laws. The road laws are temporarily reinterpreted, superseded by the needs of the one who rules. Jesus is saying all the laws around the Sabbath is superseded by him and should serve him. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. You can imagine the Pharisees' faces by now. But what's the application for us here? Well, I think it's this. Find your rest in Jesus. There is more to life than work. There is more to being human than our few years here on earth. The idea that we're a meaningless, random speck of dust in the universe is it, demeaning. It's inhuman. Everyone searches for meaning in life, for rest. And Jesus says to you, find your rest in me. So in the here and now, find your rest, find your meaning by believing in and following Jesus. And for eternity, rest in finding your hope for joyful, perfect relationship with God in Jesus. So our third and final point. In verses 6 to 10, we get another Sabbath story, the second Sabbath incident. And Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter, uh, revealing the hearts of his opponents with just a simple question. So here they all are, another Sabbath, another day when they're supposed to be looking forward to God's new creation, when everything is going to be made perfect again. And before them is a man with a withered hand. So, are the religious rulers, are they looking for a Sabbath miracle because it will help them see what that perfect day might be like? Because it will mean restoration for the man himself? Is that why they've come to see? No. Verse 7. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. So according to the Pharisees, if Jesus does the right thing according to them, according to what they think he should do, this man carries on with this disability. And, you know, in a subsistence economy, the loss of the use of a hand is a sentence to slavery, basically. But Jesus knows their hearts, and so, standing the man in front of everyone, for everyone to see, he asks this question. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? In other words, what are you all about? Where's your heart at? And this is the question we need to ask of any person or philosophy or culture or law that stands opposed to Jesus? Is it good or is it evil? Is it saving life or is it destroying it? 
the tables are turned. They've come to watch Jesus closely to catch him out. But now, verse 10, he looked around at them all. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Jesus comes to do good. Jesus comes to save life. But we end up where we started, verse 11. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So remember, we are not the Pharisees in this story. We, I don't think any of us think that people should suffer for the sake of our rules being proven right. But I think that we're often told by opponents of Jesus that that is what we think, but that we want people to suffer. We're told that Jesus is an oppressor who brings evil and destroys life, and we're expected to feel bad because of it. But remember, Luke is writing this gospel so that we can have certainty. And his readers probably had the, the question, if Jesus is the real deal, why do his own people and his own religion reject him? And we can have the question, if Jesus is so good, why do so many oppose him? If Jesus saves life, why do people we live with and we work with and, and people we love treat him as a threat to life? None of us live in a vacuum, we live in a culture, and our sort of Western liberal individualistic culture, there's lots of names for it, but basically one of the main ideas we live with, I suppose, is the idea that we're fundamentally basically good. So if your starting point is, I'm, I'm basically okay, and where I'm not okay, it's largely down to my upbringing or my social status or some other external factor. If that's your basic assumption, your starting point, then Jesus telling you, you are a sinner who needs to repent, is pretty offensive. But deep down, we know Jesus is right. We see it in the world. We see it in our relationships. Jesus knows we're sinners. Knows our relationship with God is broken. And steps in, personally, to give up his life for ours so that we can be forgiven and saved. And Jesus is offensive because he also challenges our society's idea that freedom freedom's a big thing, isn't it? Freedom of individual, individual choice is, is valued really highly. And our society says that what is true for you is what's important. But Jesus says, I am the true bridegroom. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You will only find rest in me. So how does this work? So some years, when we've tried to do Christmas in schools, we've gone around schools and done gospel presentations. In some schools, there's been some resistance from some teachers. The argument goes that school is a place for learning very valuable facts, not what people believe. That's the argument. And it kind of makes sense. But actually, it only makes sense if Jesus isn't true. If Jesus really is good news, then denying children the chance to hear about him is denying them a chance to find the ultimate good. Um, and just in our 
conversation in our culture. There's things you can talk about in the sort of public sphere of conversations, isn't there? Like every day, you can talk about sport. Well, well I can't. I don't know. You can talk about sports or family to a certain level, but faith, ooh, no, that's on this sort of inner circle of private stuff, isn't it? But our culture is wrong. I mean, if it means not talking about Jesus, if it means not talking about the only one who can save and bring the ultimate good, then it's wrong. Jesus comes to do good. Jesus comes to save life. In opposition to Jesus, however well-intentioned or rational it seems or caring it seems, is opposition to what is good. It's opposition to humanity finding rest. Jesus is the only one qualified to do the Sabbath work of forgiveness of sins, of salvation, bringing us the ultimate good, eternal rest with God. So people like the religious rulers will hate what Jesus has to say, and they may well hate you for following him. But opposing Jesus is working against the good of humanity. Jesus is the real deal. He is worth following because he can declare our sins forgiven. Jesus alone can give us true rest. So know that Jesus is the bridegroom. Know that everything has changed. Know that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Find your rest in him. And expect opposition to Jesus. But stand firm, knowing it for what it is. Opposition to what is good. We're going to sing in a moment. The music is going to come. And then we're going to celebrate communion together, which we'll explain as we go. But please use that as an opportunity to stand firm and we all stand firm together support one another a sign of solidarity all sharing in the one juice and bread as we all share in the same blood and body I'll just pray before we sing Heavenly Father thank you that Jesus is the game changing true bridegroom Thank you that all scripture is fulfilled in him. Thank you that he brings us forgiveness if we repent and believe. Lord, where we've sinned, where we've gone our own way, where we've rejected.